Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for April 2014. This month I've got just one feature interview, and it's with me. In this conversation, I'm being interviewed by Mike House. Mike's an expert on change, adaptability, and survival, and he wears many hats. He leads people into the Australian outback on survival trips. He helps business leaders survive and thrive in this changing world, and he's been a business leader himself for more than 30 years. And so in this conversation, we talk about how the Internet has changed the way that we work, the way that we lead, how we run businesses and organizations, and how we live. So let's jump right into that conversation now. In September 1988, Gihan Pereira had a realisation. That realisation was that the internet would change the world. The internet and various tools it brings into being are now such a part of our daily life that most of us never pause to give it any thought. And the idea that someone would realise that it could change the world is no big deal. It clearly has, and it clearly is. But let me say that date again. It was September 1988. That's before most of us even knew there was an internet. It's back in the days of green blinking curses, before Google, before Facebook, before your smartphone, before Twitter. Since then, Gihan's applied himself to helping thought leaders get the most out of the internet. He's a prolific author. He's a producer of high-value, high-content webinars, a regular speaker as a futurist, and was described by Forbes magazine as the fifth most influential individual in the world in social media book publishing. Gihan, welcome. Hi, Mike. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. Gihan, I was uh, reading your book, Fast, Flat and Free, and you talk in that in quite a bit of detail about how the internet has changed the nature of business. Could you tell us a bit about how you see it has changed and how it's changing going forward from here? Yeah, sure. And I think the title gives it away, Mike. It's fast, flat and free. Those are the three things that have changed. And I was thinking about what, what's, what's caused that change. And I think it's really the shift that we've had recently that the internet's really accelerated from physical to digital. So there used to be things that you could actually pick up and hold or nothing maybe too big to pick up and hold, but you could actually see them. And that was the physical stuff, the, the atoms. We've now shifted to, to the digital world where it's very much about bits, which you can't see and touch and hold and atoms to bits. So that, that shift has been significant for us because if you look at those three things, fast, flat and free, you can see how that change has happened. So you know, the internet's become, the internet's made the world a lot faster because we've just got these ones and zeros, which are the bits, and they move literally at the speed of light around the world, whereas atoms, they're physical. You pick them up and you move them, well, I guess at the speed of Australia Post. <laughs> and uh, so it, it that makes a difference. So it takes time for things to happen, and now it doesn't. Uh, so that's the, the world certainly become faster. And by flat, it's really about flattening hierarchies and uh, barriers and all the sort of structures that used to be in place just aren't there anymore. So... You know, TVs and newspapers used to control our access to information and they just don't anymore because you can get access to, to video online through YouTube. You can get access to the information that newspapers used to give us from blogs and even things like you know, travel websites, Urban Spoon for restaurants, a job advisor for finding your jobs. Those are sort of places now where people are going to. We've got, we've got all the power now. So it's really flattened those sort of hierarchies there. Uh, if you look at the workplaces, employees now know more than their managers do and sometimes they're very very good networks and very strong networks so people don't trust you anymore and respect you just because you've got gray hair in the corner office you've <laughs> got to you've got to earn the trust you've got to earn that respect i don't know whether you've got kids mike i don't but i've i've got two nieces and a nephew and uh my partner nikki has two kids who are now 12 and 15 and you know, kids know more than their parents now this is the first generation where parents can't really give the sort of advice that my parents used to give me about growing up and being safe and and which side of the which side of the plate to put my knife and fork that sort of advice parents don't have the skills anymore the kids have that and they have that knowledge and i think that's that's what's happened with the world becoming flat and the third thing is of course that things that used to cost a lot now cost a lot less and sometimes they're free and that's a big thing and it's really because the world of atoms, the physical world, was all about stuff that was heavy and bulky and expensive to move around. And, and bits are exactly the opposite of that. They're, they're light. 
they're tiny, they they have no mass at all, and and they're free. Um, I guess you remember the times, Mike, when you used to go to any library, and there'd be a queue of people at a photocopying machine, because if you yes. wanted to copy some information, you had to physically do it. You had to take the book over, put on a bit of glass, and and copy the page or the article or whatever. And now. You don't have to do that because you can just copy the bits um, instantly. And so that's that's the reason that or that's what's changed in the world. And it's the reason why we all have to just face that new that new fast, flat and free world. Gihan, it's fascinating what you're saying there about hierarchy. It's I, I do a lot of research around leaders who were in survival situations going back many, many years around the turn of the last century and Many times their people describe them as somebody worth following just because of their position. As you say, they, mm. they were the captain or the, the general and they had the grey hair and the venerable position. How do people capture that sort of respect in a fast, flat and free world? Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right, Mark. So it used to be because you, you had authority. Uh, because of your title or your seniority or your age or the, the connections that you had in the network. But now people respect you because you are an authority. So people respect you for, for what you really have. And, you know, leadership now is not just about the organizational structure. It's not even about the organizational structure turned upside down. You know, there used to be the thing where you go, okay, well, leadership used to be about top down and then you go to bottom up and then you got to serve the people who serve the customer. And I think that's all really important. But now leadership is much more facilitative, collaborative. Uh, everyone's a leader. And uh, I know that sounds like a motivational speaker saying, yeah. you too can be a leader, but it's not. It really is the chance for everybody to demonstrate their leadership skills and I think people become leaders and people demonstrate leadership even whether or not they actually have the authority. It's if you if you are an authority and you can and, and now the internet's given us the power to demonstrate that and spread that. Uh, and if you can do that then you will be a leader. And I think that people will talk about a number of things in leadership, but I think the, the most important thing you need with, with leadership is to be a leader, you need to have followers. And yes. the internet now makes it so much easier for you to build up followers who are going to follow you because they want to, not because they have to. How does that look, do you think, for a relatively small business leader, someone that owns and operates their own business with with a small number of employees where they're actually face-to-face most of the time? I think it's easier, Mike. I think if the smaller businesses who don't have the bureaucracy, who don't have the, the layers and layers of systems and processes and documentation, some of which are really good, but a lot of them are now obsolete, redundant. Um, so I think if you're in a small business, it's so much easier. And I remember when I first started, my very first job was in a small software company here in Perth, and we had 20 people. And in my first week of work, I wrote a software program that helped a little bit with the admin around doing timesheets so we could bill our clients. And my boss took that and installed it on the company server and then everyone started using it. And that's the first time I realized, wow, you know, I can actually do stuff that's going to have some influence and coming up through a school system, university system, and what I knew about how the workforce works. I never expected that when I walked out uh, into my first, the second week of my job, my first job when I was 21 years old. But I think in a small business, the, the leaders who encourage people to demonstrate their leadership and to take initiative, uh, they're the ones who are, they're, they're very, very lucky to work in a small business because everyone wants to do a good job, and if you give them the chance to do it, now more than ever, they've got the chance to do it. You mentioned in Fast, Flat and Free that the focus should be around people first with the technology coming second. Obviously, the technology is something that's facilitating all of this new potential in the world. What do you mean exactly by people first, technology second? I just think everything has to be about people, Mike. The technology always is going to be a facilitator. It's still got to be about people first. And it's very much about using and choosing the right technology to facilitate connections between people. People first, technology second is really broad. But I think Mm. if you want to be really specific, think about how you can use technology to help the people in your team and in your wider network um, leverage that technology to influence others. Because I think that really uh, the future is all about influence. It's not about having the, the power of the biggest computers, the, the largest amount of data, the greatest number of followers on your Twitter network. It's about how much influence do you really have. And so if you think about what can I do to give my people 
more influence, what technology can I give them, then do that. And by the way, when I say my people, it's not only the people working within my organizations. It can be the, the joint venture partners that, that bring me a lot of business. It can be my best customer who would rave about me if I gave them the chance to do that. It's all those people in your network who will support and help your organization grow and flourish. How can you give them technology to increase the influence that they have? Kihan, it's a really exciting time, I think. Technology is expanding so rapidly. It's it's simultaneously really exciting and also a little bit intimidating. And I know that I can regularly in my own business get pulled into a, a kind of a headspace that's all about technology where I'm, I'm having to focus on it because I actually don't understand it sufficiently to be able to use it to its maximum potential, I guess. And if I'm not careful, I find that, that there I am stuck in this little technology loop trying to sort something out or make sense of it all. How do you think leaders can avoid that kind of issue to, to keep that view that you're describing that's pulled back a bit and more focused on the, on the people and the connections and the communication? I think you always have to remember that your technology is there to support. It's there to support and facilitate and leverage the power of your people. So, you know, leaders set set their visions, they tell the corporate stories, and their job is to steer the organization in the right direction. And and for most businesses, I mean, most of us aren't tech businesses. My business is a little bit of an exception. There are businesses who are in the tech industry who have to focus on technology as a key driver. And the, the adoption of technology, the use of technology, the spread of technology, all of that is going to be part of the the corporate mission and part of the KPIs of management and, and teams. But for most of us, that's not that's not our goal. So look at what our goal actually is and then look at how you can use technology to leverage that. And I'm, I think sometimes you've got to be a bit ruthless as well, Mike. There's technology that you might be using that is not serving you anymore. So get rid of it or change it and be willing to change it, be willing to change it very quickly if it's not serving you. Specifically to answer your question, I think again, remember what your focus is and it's probably not technology. Look at the way the technology can help you achieve that focus. Indeed. I'm interested in the, this concept of moving on from platforms that don't serve you. And I've heard you speak before and you use that analogy of, of a spacecraft heading to Mars, I think. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So this is, so the idea is that technology is moving so fast now that sometimes it gets in our way and we'd actually be better off if it was moving a little bit slower. And we're going to have, we're going to have in a few years time spacecraft that can take people to other planets. And Mars is maybe a little bit close, but let's say if you're going to the outer planet of your solar system, of our solar system, it'll take you some years to get there. But if you get on one of those spacecraft, before you get to your destination, you'll be overtaken by somebody else who comes, uh, who's left Earth years after you did, but with better technology in their spacecraft. Yes. And so, you know, why would you, why would you get in the first one? You might as well wait for the second one. But then that one has the same problem because even though it's got better technology, there's something going to come along a little bit later with even better technology. And it's just a never ending cycle, Mike, that you, the, the technology is moving so fast that you're tempted to just wait. And you know, the same, like you got, you want to upgrade your phone every six months, uh, you don't. You, you take it. You get a phone. You'll hold on to it for two years. But some, if you'd waited three months, the the people who got the phone three months later will already leapfrog you and will have better technology. And this, you know, it's, it's stuff just becomes obsolete so quickly. Uh, things are obsolete before, as soon as you unwrap them and take them out of the box. Yes. And uh, in fact, I remember, Mike, when I was in that first job. Uh, working for this small software company, my first overseas trip was doing um, an installation of a cable system in Hong Kong. Uh, we were contracted to write the computer systems for this company that was installing them. And I spent three weeks in Hong Kong and talking to some of the engineers there. They said that this cable that, we're, that they were laying was already obsolete. Wow. At first I thought, wow, well, why am I doing this? What, what's the point of this? Because it's going to be superseded by something later. But the point is that um, you can't do that forever. You can't just keep saying, well, let me not lay this. Let me not get started because it's going to be obsolete. You Sometimes you just, just got to take the plunge. And it does take some judgment in figuring out when to do that. Yes. So for the business owners and leaders I speak to, there's a question of balance in that, you know, choosing mm. when to actually make that leap. And I guess any time that a, that a business or even a, an individual makes a decision to change a technology platform, there's some sort of cost to that, and it's usually measured in time or dollars, perhaps in learning or unlearning. 
and activating new systems. There's potentially lost productivity time and maybe even lost opportunities as well. And on top of that, some stress and uncertainty. So it's a big decision. How would a, would a business really know when a platform's not serving them anymore and the time is right to make the change? I know, and I know it can be quite a difficult thing to do because you, as you say, there's a short-term hit that you're going to take mm. and sometimes it can be a very big short-term hit. So I've, I've got some guidelines around this, Mark. So mm. one is like really specific around the technology and the other one's really broad. Um, I guess a broad one starts with the idea that I got from somebody who was talking about stock market, stock market investment. He's a very successful investor and I've just got to find I forget who he is and I haven't been able to track him down, but mm. he said he made a lot of money by following the advice to buy too high and sell too low, <laughs> which when, when you think about it, it's the exact opposite of what most people tell you, yes. right? They say you shouldn't buy too high or sell too low because you're losing money. But his point was he was, he was just being conservative. So he said he didn't mind. He didn't wait until the stock hit rock bottom to buy. Mm. In the same way, when the stock was rising, he didn't try to predict when it was actually going to hit the, the very, very peak. He'd go, okay, well, this is good enough now. I've made enough of a margin. I'm going to sell. And I think the same advice applies when you're looking at technology because most of us don't need to jump in and jump on every new tech bandwagon. So we don't need the latest and greatest technology. So you don't need to get in there straight away. So at the same time, you don't want to wait until your technology is so old and creaking and falling apart and you're holding it together with sticky tape and, uh, and chewing gum to, until you do the change. So I think the, the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. If you're looking at any technology, it generally goes through four stages. So it goes through the, first of all, it's available, then it's feasible, then it's attractive, and then it's preferable. So available just means it's there, it's out there. And only the early, early adopters need to go for that. And for most businesses, you don't need to jump on that bandwagon straight away. Feasible means that the, the initial chinks um, and the problems have been ironed out. It's now a feasible technology. Not everyone's using it, but it is really feasible. And that's the time you should start thinking about, should I go for this technology? So is that is that essentially about stability, Gihan? That feasible phase? It's find out some of its bugs and it's it's inherently a bit more stable. Hmm. Exactly. People would say don't ever buy the first like version one point zero of anything that Apple produces. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I think there's some truth to that because there will be the early adopters and the cult members who'll go out and do that and they'll queue up outside the Apple store. But I think for most of us, if you're looking at a business decision, you don't need the very latest, greatest, shiniest. But if you wait for the stable version, which is generally stable version two of the Apple stuff, it's got a few more features that Apple held back the first time. It's had the chance to go through some, some user um, actual user use and they've come back with some and they, they, then they put in the features that they know that people are really crying out for then you go for that so yeah you're right Mike so feasible is when it becomes a bit more stable it's mm. definitely not mainstream yet um, mainstream is when it becomes attractive so that's when you go oh it's it's reached its tipping point and more and more people are using it so it's quite attractive for me to for me to consider it as well mm. and the uh, the fourth one, which is preferable, is where you go, okay, well, actually, I can see that the short-term hit I'm going to take is, uh, you know, I can see light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a very long tunnel. So the short-term hit I'm going to take is not that big, and I can really see that if I don't do it, then I really am falling behind. So I w you don't want to get to that last stage either. So mm. I reckon if you look at those two middle stages where it's feasible, so stable, and uh, attractive, where it's now kind of becoming mainstream, then those are the times when for most of us, that's a good time to upgrade our technology. Now, I think the other thing, Mark, is like if you're looking at specific things, so I guess that's a broad guideline. So you can mm. say, okay, I want to go to feasible and attractive, but it still doesn't tell you what sort of, what's going to be future proofed technology for you to, uh, for you to adopt. I think if you're really looking for specific things, I think the, the three things that I would say, I look for open cloud and subscriptions. So like open, open stuff means that it's supported by a lot of people. It's uh, widely available. It's easy to get support for that. It's very, um, it's likely to be stable because there are a number of people working on it. Like ironically, there are a number of people working on it, but it also means that when problems occur, they get fixed very quickly. So as an example, if you're looking for a web browser, uh, I think you shouldn't be using Internet Explorer on PCs or Safari on a Mac. I think you should be using uh, Firefox or Chrome because they're much more more open and it just means that they're 
They've got better features. They've got faster upgrades. They've got, um, they're, they're more powerful simply because of the fact that the, that the world is looking after it. So I think if you go for open software, then an open technology, then you're, you're likely to have a more stable uh, base for longer. Um, the second one is cloud because mm-hmm. a, a cloud just, um, cloud just means your, your stuff is in the internet rather than sitting on a hard disk somewhere in a room. So, Put your stuff in the cloud as much as possible. So software that supports cloud-based activity, uh, cloud-based data and applications simply means that you can access it from anywhere around the world. So uh, not only from your own phone, tablet and, and computer, but also from any other computer. It also means that other, it, it just makes your organization uh, more flexible. So let's say my, you know, I don't know what accounting software you use, but there's some great cloud-based accounting software now. One of the best-known ones is Xero, so X-E-R-O, and that's cloud-based software. And it just means that um, you can access your accounts from anywhere, but it also means that when your business grows and you want to um, outsource your accounting to somewhere else, they can access your data as well. Or let's say your accountant leaves and you need to hire somebody else, you might choose that you're not going to hire a full-time Accountant or bookkeeper, but you're going to have someone, you're going to outsource that to a contractor. And that just makes it so much easier if it's a cloud-based service. And again, then the third bit, which is subscriptions, which is again related to that, is if you're paying a subscription fee rather than a one-off fee. So in other words, if you're renting rather than buying, it again gives you the benefits of having that software that's there, it's supported, it's uh, going to be upgraded automatically rather than you buying something which then becomes obsolete. And there's a there's a big push towards this, Mark, not just with the sort of computer technology we're talking about, but with any technology, you mm-hmm. know, that there's a um, there is there are now in many capital cities, Perth hasn't got one yet, but I know in Melbourne and Sydney you can you can rent cars. So there are oh, there right. are car share car sharing services where you don't have to buy a car anymore. You just pay a monthly fee to have access to this service where there are a number of cars in that service and uh, there's a pod close to your suburb. So you may have to walk 10 minutes at most to, to get one and you just go online and you book it for a certain time. You go and pick up the car, um, use it. You can fill it up with petrol. You don't have to pay for it. There's a fuel voucher, um, a fuel card that you can use to pay for pay for the petrol you just have to return it and it's all it it all works because of the internet because people can go online and see which cars are available at which times can book it it's all completely self-operated and you never have to buy a car and worry about the maintenance and the the, co- the high costs of of running a car you just share it so in the same way software is working the same way as well and and a lot of things around us in our world are working that way so if you can get a subscription of service for something that's going to be more, um, it's going to be more reliable for the future than buying it outright. All of these things have have exceptions, but generally, I think if you go for open cloud and subscriptions, you're doing pretty well. And I guess that kind of opens up the your car example from Sydney and Melbourne and no doubt other parts of the world as well, opens up so many possibilities for small to medium enterprise where potentially the equipment they need to do whatever it is that they're doing is quite expensive if they were to buy it outright on their own. But to work collaboratively with a, a network of others using that kind of gear could be very economical. I um, guess it's another example of, of things becoming cheaper. Yeah, exactly right, Mark. And I think it's also a case of some business models just completely like changing or becoming completely obsolete yeah. because... Again, coming back to that hierarchy in the world that, in a world that wasn't flat, there were few people and few organizations that had control and had access to, to information, which is the thing that most, uh, that the internet has changed the most, but also even to physical products. There were, uh, retailers had access to physical stuff that you could buy in a shop. But now with 3D printing, that suddenly becomes uh, available to anybody. At home, where you can print objects mm. by simply downloading a blueprint from the internet and then printing it on a printer. And those 3D printers are absolutely amazing. Uh, recently, uh, there's some research being done in California where people can print a house. Wow. So in, 20, in 24 hours, you can build a house. Wow. And, uh, I, I think there's probably people who go, oh, maybe I should become a brickie because that, that job will never go out of, never go out of fashion and that can't be outsourced anyway, but absolutely can. That's amazing. Whenever you start to gaze into the future a little bit, there's such an astounding array of possibility before us that it will be a fascinating world to live in over the next couple of decades and to be doing business in, I think. just so many opportunities and so much potential. 
Gihan, just interested in going back to the cloud for a little while. I know that some of the business owners that I've spoken to when I talk about cloud-based systems have quite a concern about security for their information and, and their whole business really being potentially accessed by others, possibly with ill intent. But how, how reliable is security in the cloud now? Mm. Okay, I think that um, there the are two parts to this, Mark. So mm. First of all, if you're in a business where that has very, very strict requirements about data and maybe even legislative requirements, then the answer is quite different. For example, if in sort of health services kind of industry and there's some there are some rules about what you can do with your data covered by privacy and confidentiality actual laws, then the answers to this might be different because you have to look very carefully about even storing that data on international servers and things of like that, which is what the cloud generally um the, the common cloud services are generally based in other countries. Mm. So you have to be in those situations, then you really, really need to look very, very carefully at that. And again, this is one of the situations where most of us, most of our businesses don't have to worry about that. So let's look at that. The second group who don't have to worry about the, the legality of using a cloud service, but just look at the practicality of using it. I think for most businesses, it's a little bit like my mum when she first started writing her, like writing stories and memoirs. And she's, she's, my mum's a prolific writer, a bit like I am. But when she first started using a computer, she would make sure that she would print everything that she typed into the computer so that she'd have a copy of it just in case anything went wrong with the computer. Mm. And that sort of backup service would just gave her peace of mind. And I think a lot of people are looking at the cloud the same way. So even though I knew, like, it just wasn't necessary for her to print every, every, every piece of paper, that uh, print on paper everything that she typed in as long as she had yeah, sufficient backups. I think the same is true now, Mark. I don't think you need to um, be too concerned about that because uh, most cloud-based services, first of all, in terms of the the, the the likelihood of your data being lost is is low and is lower than having it sitting on a laptop somewhere and the laptop crashes and you've taken and you haven't taken backups for a week because most of those cloud services have very very good. Um, sec- Sorry, not security. They've got very good reliability mm. uh, to make sure your data doesn't get lost. So that's the first bit. The second thing is around security, and I completely understand that people are worried about their information being insecure. But again, I think it's a uh, it's weighing up the costs versus the benefits. So there, are, at at the moment, the the cloud based services are very secure, and they do get occasionally. Uh, penetrated by hackers. So that does happen from time to time, but people are pretty smart now and the people who are, are running these cloud servers are some of the smartest people out there when it comes to computer security. So again, your data probably is more secure there than it is sitting on your laptop where you might say go to a McDonald's or some internet cafe that has free Wi-Fi and you connect to the free Wi-Fi and some hacker is who's sitting there at another table is watching everything that you're doing over the internet. See, that sort of stuff happens and people don't know that it happens. They just connect to a free Wi-Fi service somewhere and uh, they're just, they're happily sending data uh, to and forth along uh, through the internet and they don't realize how vulnerable they are. Whereas the cloud services generally they will they will have protection for that sort of thing to prevent exactly mm. that sort of thing, so I think we're better off in the hands of the cloud providers than left to our own devices, uh, like literally left to our own devices, <laughs> Be- um, simply because we don't know as much, and they will generally put in the sort of safeguards that we don't even know are there behind the scenes to protect our data. I guess it's another example of the open part of that three-part equation you were talking about, the open, the cloud and subscriptions. If it's, if it's on the cloud and it's relatively open, then there's a lot of people whose, whose information and whose business and livelihood depends on it working well, which by default means there's a lot of people looking after it. Uh, certainly way better than just my mind trying to deal with whatever's on my desk. I think we are our own worst enemy when it comes to security and even protection of our data. Um, it's too easy to not do that. It's not, it's too easy to do nothing about our computer security, about our privacy, about confidentiality of data. And people just don't think about, you know, what happens if my laptop gets stolen? Mm. Uh, what happens if, even if I take backups, what happens if my house burns down and I lose all the backups because they're just in the same, in the same house as the original data? So 
there's a there's a more general issue here, which is all about being being more careful about your security. Mm. But whether you're doing it cloud based or whether you're doing it yourself on your whether you're doing it by yourself, um, I don't think that's as as relevant. And I think you're better off actually. Uh, putting it in the hands of these reliable cloud providers, unless you have a very good IT team who will handle all of that for you. And certainly there's some organizations where you get to the size where you go, okay, I'm going to trust my IT team to manage all of that. And in that case, I would say ignore my advice and listen to them first, and they will tell you. But we're talking about people who are going to make the decision themselves, then I think you you, you might as well put it in the cloud. The, the one inconvenience that we have with the cloud is that sometimes, um, especially here in Australia, we don't have a universal internet access. So mm. uh, if you're flying on a plane, if you're um, out and about, sometimes you don't either have no access at all. Mike, you'd know this when you go out to the outback. Yes. Um, or it's very, very expensive. So you do have to keep that in mind because it may be an inconvenience to have access to your data where, whenever and wherever you want it. However, even that's getting better and better. Gihan, I'm, I'm curious about the way that we've taken this conversation together. We started off saying that uh, getting focused on the technology was really what we shouldn't do and that relationships and people should be the focus. Uh, and, and then we've taken off down quite a detailed technological avenue for, for a little while now. In Fast, Flat and Free, you actually talk a lot about slowing down and building connections. And and in, in light of everything that we've just discussed, that slowing down actually almost seems contradictory. How would you determine which parts of the business need slowing down and which need faster responses? Yeah, actually, I, I don't think necessarily slowing down mm. would be my advice, Mike, but I would say create deeper connections. Right. So definitely I agree with a bit about building connections and building deeper connections. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily mean building them slow. In fact, if anything, it's building deeper connections faster. Right. Um, but what I would say to avoid is don't try and reach everybody. So you don't have to go out and try and count the number of followers you got or the size of your LinkedIn network or the, the, the size of your database or the amount of data that you can gather from your, um, from your customers and your point of sale equipment. You don't need all of that. Look for quality over quantity. And, uh, I, I think you're, you're better off by spe- speeding up, but speeding up in the right places. And I think that's really what you're asking. Mm. So, like, which, which bits do you choose? And, uh, which, how do you, how do you choose where you focus? And I think, uh, so that the idea of building connections is really, really important. It's very important. Uh, and if you look at an area like, let's say customer service as an example. So if this, if there's somebody who's already a customer, then what can you do to give them a high priority and give them a higher priority than maybe somebody who's not and who might be a lead? Because the person is already a customer. They already know, like, and trust you. So they're likely to, they've already done business with you. They're likely to do business with you again. Mm. And if they're your best customers, they're going to be advocates for you and your business and your brand. So they're the sort of people you really want to nurture. And I see a lot of people especially with social media, they get seduced by the idea that social media lets them reach the world and therefore they should be spending all their time engaging out there with social media or on social media with people who don't yet know, like, and trust them and trying to get them, trying to build up that know, like, and trust and then get followed when, in fact, they could be spending more time building and nurturing those connections. So if you look at something like uh, a customer service, for example, if you think about... How do you speed up the speed up and build deeper connections there? I reckon if you look at something like call centers, that's quite slow. Mm-hmm. So if somebody has a problem and they have to pick up the phone and call a call center, even if it's not one of those interminable, you know, press one if you want this, <laughs> press two if you do this, you eventually get to speak to a real human, even if it's not, even if it's pretty quick. People don't want to have to work with somebody to pick up the phone, talk to somebody and work through a problem there, um, especially if it's like nine to five, Monday to Friday, they want instant access to it. So a faster solution would be to provide some sort of online service. So you've got online tutorials, online frequently asked questions, um, even an online forum where customers can post questions and other customers can answer that question. So that's a way that you can actually provide better customer service um, in a faster way. 
And I think if you want to be even better again, then involve your customers right back in the design phase. So you, people can now be involved way back while the product's being designed and built. Uh, and even you can even determine whether there's a demand for your product before you decide to put the effort into building it. And then when you build it, you build it with the right features so that the customer service problem never comes up in the first place. So I think that's the sort of area where you can say, I'm going to build a deeper connection and the, the uh, fast, flat, and free world now allows me to do that faster and easier. Thanks for that, Gihan. I, I know that a lot of your current speaking and writing is revolving around your concept of I matter. What What's that all about? How's And how's yeah, that yeah, impacting yeah. on the territory that we've been talking about? Yeah, in fact, it's, it's really everything we've been talking about, mm. Mike. And if you, if the, it dovetails with the fast, flat and free idea. So fast, flat and free is how the world has changed and I matter is what you now need to do to thrive in it. So um, I matter is all about the idea that there are now people who have, who say I matter. They've got something important to say. They've got a message or they've got something that they want to share with the world and the internet now gives them the power to do that. And so it's leveraging the power of the individual. So that's really what I matter is all about. Uh, there have always been people who say I matter. It's just that in the past, they haven't had the vehicles and the leverage to be able to do something about it. And now they do. In this fast, flat and free world, they can choose to be fast. So they can do stuff very, very quickly. They can choose to be flat because they don't have to be uh, at the top of the tree, at the top of the hierarchy. They don't have to have worked up years and years and decades to get to that position where they've got influence and they can do stuff at very low cost because they no longer need to to set up a factory or buy a retail retail space in order to be able to sell or to just share their message. So iMatter is all about tapping into the people who who have influence and tapping into those people, whether they're your customers, your your employees or you yourself. It brings to mind for me two interesting and seemingly divergent trends that are out there at the moment. One is that people seem to be quite overwhelmed by the amount of information available. There's obviously an increasing Mm -hmm. amount of it and it's more and more readily available in, in many different formats. And that seems to result in people being more cynical and critical. And it I guess has a knock-on effect that it takes greater effort to earn trust and respect in the marketplace where that's happening. The other trend is that there is almost a continual stream of people clamouring for attention to, I guess, waving the flag and saying, I matter. And with with the internet technology and mobile platforms, etc., that we've got, there's almost unlimited bandwidth for emerging personalities how do we spot quality in that barrage of information and how do we demonstrate it to our own audiences? Yeah, I really like that you asked the question that way, Mike, because it's, it is both sides of that. So one is how do you spot the quality in everything that's out there? And the second part is how do you stand out? Yes. And be different and actually have something that's worth, worth sharing because it's not a, it's not enough just to be different. You have to have, to, you also have to have something worth sharing, especially if you're in business. So I reckon those two things are linked. Mm. So uh, because part of the way that you can uh, demonstrate quality is to share what you learn. So I, I've got three principles around that, Mike. And what I tell people to do is, is to read widely, to choose wisely, and then to share quickly. So read widely just means expose yourself to a lot of stuff that's out there. So there's, you can't expose yourself to everything. But uh, you can uh, pick and choose now uh, some hu- some really high quality information. We've never been in a luckier space than we are now, mm. where we have access to the the world's best information. The problem is there's too much of it, so you do have to. Um, apart from just reading widely, you do have to choose wisely. And I, I recommend that you find the, and the choice comes down to three things. So one is you find the sources. So you find the best sources, whether they're a particular blog that you follow regularly or a podcast that you listen to or YouTube channels that you subscribe to. Um, so, And it doesn't have to be just one, of course. So, mm. so pick and choose, but pick and choose not only very laser focused within your area of expertise. Ideally, you want to pick and choose stuff that's going to help not just you, but help your customers and, if you can, your customers' customers because that's the real depth mm. is that you become the person who can help 
your, your own business, but also your customers and clients, and also their customers and clients. So that's the first bit, which is reading, uh, reading widely. The second bit is to choose wisely, and that's that's choosing how you consume that information because you just can't get it all. So you've got to decide what's right for you. And so the, the three bits, first of all, is make the choice uh, to find the right sources. Mm. The second thing is when you read it, and the se- and the third one is where you read it. And the when and where kind of go together. So for example, I like listening to podcasts so I like listening to audio much more than I like watching TV or watching video mm. because I can listen to podcasts while I'm at the gym while I'm on my bike I can do it while I'm walking when I'm in the car um, basically while I'm multitasking and I can play the podcast at double speed and you'd be amazed Mike that you can still understand uh, everything in the podcast when you listen to it at double speed because our mind processes much quicker than than we speak uh, whereas with video, all of those advantages go away. I have to be doing, I have to be focused on the video. I have, most video players will only play it at single speed, otherwise, or, or you'll sound like a chipmunk if you speed it up. Um, you have to be, uh, like I said, you, the main thing is you can't be multitasking. And all the benefits of video generally aren't that useful for most of the business sort of videos that, that I'm interested in. Mm. So TED Talks, for example, so you you probably know the TED.com, yes. um, the, the presentations. Some of them are really highly visual, but I'd rather subscribe to the TED audio podcast, listen to them, and then go back and watch the few that actually need, I actually needed the graphics or the visuals for. Mm. Um, so I'd rather do it that way. Now, my friend Brandon's the opposite. He spends a lot of time traveling, so he spends a lot of time on planes. So he downloads, uh, subscribes to TED po- uh, app where he can download all the latest TED videos and he watches them when he's traveling. So he's got time that he wants to use productively and he'll use that by watching videos. So you've got to kind of choose what's going to work best for you. So the medium as well as when and where you're going to, to consume it. So it's kind of a long answer to the whole choose bit. Mm. And then the third bit, which is sharing is don't hoard every bit of information that comes into you. So find stuff that you can share and then share it. And this is one of the best things you can do with social media. Be the filter for your audience or your market. So do their reading for them. So you consume the stuff. Um, most of it you will discard straight away because there's no no necessary, even after you're filtered, there isn't necessarily any ongoing value. Some of it you might keep for yourself. But then a small percentage of it, you might choose to share on social media. And that's really valuable to be, um, coming back to what we were saying earlier, becoming an authority and being somebody who's really helpful by sharing with your network what's really useful to them and only what's really useful to them. So if you do those three things, if you read widely, then it'll help you do that, answer that first part of your question, which is how you, how you spot the quality. Mm. If you then choose and share, then you will be seen as somebody who stands out and, and demonstrates that quality and that expertise to your market and your audience. In this mix comes loyalty. It used to be that loyalty was a, a relatively easy thing to command among a group of people that might be customers or clients. And I think part of that was a product of the pre-fast, flat and free world, that it was just in many cases, particularly in an environment like Western Australia, it was just too difficult to get access to many sources of the same kind of service or product. And so loyalty was almost something that had a limited choice attached to it, whereas now there's, I guess, any amount of choice available to people. Mm-hmm. How does loyalty impact in this fast, flat and free world? Mm, and that's an interesting question, Mark, because I think that's, I'd question whether if you only have limited choice or you only have one choice, are you really loyal or are you just, are you just, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Is it just the default choice? And I think loyalty now is more important than ever before for the reason that you said, but it also means that it can be easier than, uh, than ever before and also can be more powerful. In other words, if you do the right thing by your customers and clients, then you can build true ro- loyalty because they have got choice and still they'll choose you. And because they can themselves be people who are influencers, they can spread the word in far wider than you could reach and also in a more trusted way than you can reach. So definitely focus on loyalty and, un- and don't only make it about what happens after the sale because that's what, that's what loyalty used to be. It mm. used to be about how do I make sure that this customer comes back and buys from me again? Well, I don't think that... I, I think that's important, but I think that's a very limited way of looking at customer loyalty. And if that's all you look at, you'll be left behind by people who are looking at how do I involve my customers and clients at all stages of the process. So 
the the way that used to be done was with the occasional focus group. In fact, I got a letter just in the post yesterday from my local council saying they're doing some, that they want people to volunteer for a focus group. That's good, but, um, and it's better than what I've had in the last 20 years of living here, Mike. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely a step in the right direction. But I think that focus groups are again a limited way of trying to get a customer or stakeholder involvement early in the process and the internet just makes it so much easier now to do that uh, even before you even think about ideas or where you've just got the idea is just a glint to your eye uh, you can get people involved and the, one of the best examples of that is uh, the crowdfunding sites like kickstarter where you throw an idea out there and if people like it then they will put some money behind it and those are going to be your your most loyal customers. They're people who are going to get the first products off the shelf and they're going to rave about their friends and they're going to talk about the fact that they actually had some, they had a small hand to play in this product actually being birthed and uh, coming into the world. So you can build loyalty into your organization and into your whole development process. It's just don't think of it as only something that happens at the end. Involve your customers and clients in every stage of the process. And in a fast, flat and free world, there's so many ways you could do that. Crowdfunding is a way you can do it right at the very start. You can have video conferencing where it, in the past it would have been infeasible to bring people in for a customer focus group. People release products in, in beta release. And beta release is saying, look, we've got this product out there. We know it's got bugs. Uh, it's not going to completely destroy everything. But we've got, we know it's got glitches and we want you to test it and send us back reports on how we can improve it. And then the, the full release comes out. Uh, Gmail, so Google's email program was in beta for five years before it became a, a complete full product. Wow. And there were, it had millions of users while it was still in beta because it was such a good product anyway, even with the occasional glitch and Customers were constantly feeding back the problems to Google so that they could create a great product at the end of it. So those are, those are the most loyal customers you're going to get. So loyalty is absolutely crucial now, but don't think of it as only something you do after the sale. Yes, I notice your own strategy, Gihan. One of the things you're known for is a massive amount of high content and high quality content that's available to people effectively free of charge. And mm-hmm. it's... One of the things that in my mind distinguishes what you do is that it's all of that would be information and strategy and how to that people would probably be quite happy to pay for and yet you're giving it away for free. So by the time that people come to have a commercial relationship with you, you're already well established in their mind as, as a source and an expert and have somebody with prolific knowledge in your expertise area. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate you saying that because that is one of the things I set out to do, not necessarily only because of the commercial gains, but because I really do want to be positioned as an authority. And uh, I remember I'm a kid of the 80s, and I remember Steve Martin was my favorite actor. And uh, he was quoted while he was interviewed once about many years later about his success because he's an actor who's had real longevity, uh, whereas many others have had very successful careers, but they've been much more short-lived. And he was asked once in this interview, uh, what's the secret of your success? And he said this, he said, be so good, they can't ignore you. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I've kind of taken that on board as my mantra. If you go, okay, I'm going to be so good that eventually they're just, they're just going to go, this guy's so good, we can't ignore him anymore. And you can overcome you know, any obstacle. So... You and I, Mike, are trying to run speaking businesses from Perth, the most remote city in the world. Um, I've been running a, I started by running a web design business 15 years ago when the web was really new, um, went through the dot-com crash and survived that. And more importantly, my clients all survived that because it had a nice solid foundation behind it. Um, then things like Google came along, Facebook came along, the, so many other opportunities came along for people to, for people to choose. And some people don't. Don't choose me. They go to other places, and that's completely appropriate. But if you have the mantra of going, be so good they can't ignore you, and you use that as your guiding principle, then I think that you're certainly setting your standards high enough that you're going to be seen as an authority, as somebody that people, as a go-to guy that people want to go to. Because ironically, all that information that I make available is available on Google. I mean, I might have my own spin my own spin on it and it's not that I've copied anybody but you could find the same information on Google 
But the problem isn't that the information's out there. Everyone knows that Google has information. The problem is sifting through everything that's on there, that's in Google to find what's, what works and what's relevant for, for you. Mm-hmm. And so for the people that I want in my audience, in my market, in my network, I want to be seen as the number one source of stuff that's meaningful and relevant for them, not necessarily uh, applicable to everybody. It's a very generous approach, and I think it, it certainly distinguishes you from the crowd. Something that you say quite often is the need for leaders to show their face, and by that you, you usually elaborate and talk about that, you, that you're meaning their personality rather than just a business persona. So what exactly do you mean by that, a business persona versus your actual personality? So if all you see is the brand and the brand name and all the communication that comes out, comes out as part of the brand, um, that's okay. I just don't think it's as powerful as you see the people behind the brand. And this is something that social media has made this more important than ever before. Not necessarily because you want to, you, you need to do that in, in social media, but even if you're not using social media in your business, people expect to engage with people and personalities through their social media interactions so that you may be, you may connect with people on Facebook and Twitter, um, particularly Twitter because Facebook you, you tend to keep to your family and friends, uh, so they're people you already know. Whereas if you're communicating on Twitter and maybe even LinkedIn to a certain extent, Google Plus, these are places where you may be communicating, connecting with people who you have no previous relationship with and you communicating and connecting with them not only for what they're sharing and their content and their expertise, but also for who they are. So people's personalities do come through. People's um, quirks and little characteristics do come through. And that means that you connect with people as people, not just as business partners or business entities or two sides of a transaction or just an expert who you're just tapping into their knowledge. And because Mm. a lot of that knowledge is given freely, you'd much rather do that with people you like. I mean, the research is pretty clear that we tend to do business and we tend to engage and we tend to respect and we tend to be influenced by people we like. And sometimes there's people like us, but it's also people that we have some rapport with. So as business, as a business leader, if you choose to show your face, then you will have a stronger connection with the people in your network. And again, Mark, I want to make this point that we're not only talking about your customers and clients and outward-facing social media networks. We're also talking about how you communicate and connect with the people within your organization. So if you're a CEO of an organization with more than just an office, then I think one of the best things you can do is do a weekly or a monthly short video where you just do a little fireside chat and you just share share some ideas with the people in your organization. Or you may have, say, let's say Google Hangout, uh, where, which is like, that's Google's free video conferencing tool, where you have a bunch of people and you have a panel discussion, but it's an informal panel discussion, um, so that you're showing your face to the people within your organization as well. And that can be just as valuable as sharing it with your wider network. It seems to be a bit of an example of where the lines between personal and business life are blurring. A lot of the people and leaders that I speak to describe being overwhelmed and barely surviving, and part of that is about navigating the boundaries between work, family and community. And to to do that seems to give them quite a bit of stress. So have you got any advice for people to essentially thrive and adapt in that often hectic world of, of that sort of online presence that you're talking about? Yep, I've reckon in a nutshell, Mike, mm. it's your life, it's your rules. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that sounds simple and it sounds a bit, bit simplistic, but really I think that's the key. So we're now working in, this, in the age where we can't rely on other people to be considerate of us in terms of managing our information overload, managing stress, managing frustration, managing the, getting the right balance, it's up to us to make those decisions. I remember when I first started work, that first company, that software company I worked for, um, within about four years, I was a middle manager and that was, that was in the eighties and the nineties, uh, the early nineties actually. And it was a time before uh, we had access to the internet, but we didn't have, we said we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have social media, we didn't have, um, the ability to check email after we walked out of the door. So I remember when I was a manager 
for the first time and we were working on busy projects, I knew that I could do things like create uninterrupted time by doing things like, you know, shutting the door, shutting my office door for a couple of hours a day. And then people knew that unless it was really, really urgent, they wouldn't come and disturb me. Um, and then when we were getting even busier and I, I knew I couldn't do that, I would come to work early in the morning before everyone else arrived. I'd come to work on the weekend and I'd get that uninterrupted time. And that was a luxury, like looking back at that now, <laughs> there's a luxury that you could do that. Uh, I don't think it was necessarily healthy because I think I was overworking myself, but it was a luxury that I could even do that. Now, you couldn't even do that if you wanted to because we are in this uh, 24-7 always-on world. And unless you set up your own rules about how you're going to manage that, and nobody else is going to help you out with that. And, and the key is you don't have to do that. Just because you can be available 24-7 doesn't mean that you have to be. It's just that you're choosing to be. And I think that you can make, you can make smarter decisions around that. So, you know, most of the social networks, like the social media networks, is there, it's, it's in their interests to notify you and annoy you and bug you as much as possible. Mm. So they will automatically have notifications turned on. So Facebook's an example. So when somebody posts something on Facebook or tags you or likes something you do, um, your phone might beep. Now, that's optional. That's completely optional. It's something that you can turn off, but Facebook wants you to turn it on because they want you to be engaged on there. But that's your choice. So if you're doing that, like if your phone's beeping every time you get a Facebook notification or you get an email, then that's a choice that you've made. It may have been a choice you made by default, but you can choose differently. Um, or if you keep getting to, even if you're getting too many emails because your teammate, your team members are, aren't you haven't delegated well enough, so they're always delegating up to ask you questions, then that's a consequence of, the, again, the actions that you've taken. So you don't have to do that. You don't have to do it that way. Um, so make better choices and decide to do things differently. You don't have to um, be available 24-7 and you don't have to be stressed. You can make choices that are that are different from that, but you do have to make that choice. And I know that sounds it's easier said than done, but if you don't do something about it at all, then the world isn't going to slow down and wait for you to catch up. So you just have to make those decisions. And once you do, once you do make those sort of decisions, uh, I think you'll find your world, world becomes so much easier. For example, one of the things that I do, Mike, so I've got a smartphone, just like practically everybody else on the planet. Um, and I use it as a mobile phone, but only for outgoing calls. So I don't give out my mobile phone number generally for business purposes. I do have an office number and I've got a, um, a number for help desk and support for technical questions. And that's how people get through to me if they want to do business with me. Um, so that way I've, I get some control. I can be proactive about using my phone if I want to make a business call. Um, outside my normal working hours, I can do that, but I can also choose not to be interrupted unless I want to be, um, during business hours if I'm, if I'm out of the office. So those are the sort of choices that they're, they're not big things, but they're little things that can make a big difference. I think it's excellent advice, Gihan. It's one of the things that is likely to happen to us as the pace gets faster and faster is that we, if we don't spend some time thinking about how we'll individually and collectively interact with the various platforms and possibilities that are present now and no doubt coming in the future, we're just likely to get swept along with it and do things without really thinking, how does this impact me and how can I best use it? Yeah, thanks, Mike. And in the past, we've been lucky because some of those decisions have been made for us. Now, in the time when you didn't have laptops, you only had a desktop computer, and let's say your desktop was literally sitting at your, at your desk in the office, then you couldn't do work at home on the computer because you had to go to the office and that was a bit of a pain. Or you, when you walked out of the, um, out of the office at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. or 9 p.m., whenever you walked out, you walked out and you couldn't do anything more. And so some of those decisions were made for us without us having to think about them. But now when we've got smartphones, when we've got telecommuting, when we've got the working on holidays and being able to check your email when on holidays, you've got to choose the right way to do that. So I, like I've got no problem with people who check their email while on holidays as long as they don't, um, they're not just doing it out of habit, but they're making conscious decisions about when to do it. And I know there are times when I've been on holiday and I will spend half an hour in the morning going and checking my email, half an hour in the evening, and then spend the rest of the day just enjoying the rest, of, enjoying the holiday. And that's less stress 
and it's uh, it's easier to manage my my state of mind than if I didn't have access at all and I had to wait for a week and then there's a whole bunch of email to check. But make that a conscious choice rather than letting it happen to you. That's great, Gihan. Thank you very much, and I look forward to the next time that we have the opportunity to to talk. It's always enlightening, informative, and with plenty of practical information and advice. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Mike, and if you'd like to get in touch with him, visit his website, mikehouse.com.au. And as I said, there was only one feature interview this month, and that was it, and I hope you enjoyed it. So if you'd like to engage with me in other ways, here are some other things that you could do. You could engage me as a speaker for your next conference, and you can find out more about that at gehanspeaks.com. You can subscribe to my email newsletter, Expert Gold, at gehanperera.com, and while you're there read and subscribe to my blog as well. You can also sign up to my free webinar series. I run two webinars a month and they'll help you with your personal and professional life. You can also go to my video channel at gihanperera.tv and watch my regular educational videos. And finally, you can join my membership site, the eGurus community at eGurus.info. I wish you all the best for April. I'll be back next month with more. listening to expert gold radio if you'd like to subscribe read the show notes or leave your comments visit expertgoldradio.com and remember great minds don't think alike